Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and do what only you can do. Reveal Jesus to us this morning. Amen. I am excited this morning to be able to kick off our new series. As Pastor Mo said in the video you just watched, it is the School of Christ. And uh, what better way to spend our time than to just see the man Christ Jesus and to behold him. I was talking to Pastor Mo yesterday. He's preaching this morning on Become and Behold, which those of you that have been around here for a little while should be very familiar with that phrase. We spent a considerable amount of time talking about we'll behold him and we'll become like him. And we believe that this morning. And though that's not the title of my message this morning, that's always our goal is to behold the Lamb of God and to become more like him. John said, when you see him, you'll be made like him for you'll see him as he is. So this morning, that's what we're doing. We're going to start our school of Christ. Where we're looking into the life of Christ. Uh, and my topic specifically is going to be the grace of Jesus. And I'll get there in a minute. But I want, to, I want to just spend a couple of times just sort of prefacing this series. Our main verse for the next few weeks is going to be from Matthew eleven twenty nine. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I want you to pay attention to that first phrase there. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That's a fascinating phrase. Learn from me. I'd encourage you, take that verse into the secret place. Say, Jesus, I want to learn from you. Holy Spirit, teach me the things of Jesus. Jesus said, I have so many things to tell you. You can't bear them now, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He'll take the things that belong to me and declare them to you. So we believe for that this morning. He said, learn from me. Now, why, why can Jesus say that? Why, why does Jesus, why is he able to come to us and say, hey, I'm the example. Learn from me. When we sing songs this morning like Jesus is the only one. There's none like you. No other name can save me. No other name can restore why is that the case? Now, when I say that, a lot of you are going, to, what do you mean? I think it's a question we take for granted. Now, I believe that. I'll let, I'll let the cat out of the bag. I believe that. Jesus is the only way. But I want to challenge you. Let's start to think about why. And why can Jesus come and be the one that says, hey, learn from me? Especially when he walks into their day where they had teachers. They had people that understood the law. They had people that understood what God had said. To, to the prophets. They had people that understood, and yet Jesus is going to come and say, learn from me. And he starts to immediately, when he begins his ministry, insult the Pharisees with things like, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you find life. He's constantly pushing against them to say, I'm coming to bring a new paradigm. I'm shifting the narrative. Learn from me. Why can he say that? Because Jesus is our model. Jesus is the perfect example. We like to use a phrase that says Jesus is perfect theology. You should, you, should, you should examine anything in your heart this morning, anything in your mind that you have come in here, any belief that you have that you cannot find in the person of Jesus, you need to challenge that. Jesus is the model. Jesus is the model. The Bible says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the express image. He is God's divine portrait. We're going to look at it in a second, but John called him the word of God. 
He is the word, meaning that when God chose to express himself, when he tried to describe who he was, he gave us Jesus. Jesus is the word of God, the express image of his person. It says that in him is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Literally everything that is found in God is found in Jesus Christ. They, they've dwelled together forever. And that is why Jesus can come and say, learn from me, because he is the one who has dwelt forever face to face with the Father. Amen. He's the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Hebrews 1 said, in days past, God has spoken to us through the prophets, but now, praise be to God, he has spoken to us through the language of his son. Jesus. Jesus is our model. Jesus is our word. Jesus is the, uh, we'll look at another verse later, but in him is found the riches of all knowledge and wisdom. So when we say school of Christ, that's why. That's why we're looking at Jesus exclusively. That's why we're looking at Jesus exclusively. Now, I love to see Paul, a man so educated, a man so deep in the scriptures to be saying, I saved to know nothing. I choose to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is a man that spent his entire life studying and he, and he, and he gets it. The light bulb goes off and he says, I choose to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. I heard it said recently, the gospel is so simple that only a theologian could complicate it. <laughs> and I resonate with that because I love to complicate things. I'm intellectual. I'm analytical. I love to get into the details. I love to break out all of the, my stuff. And I love to come with notes and notes and notes. But the reality is Jesus is the message. Jesus is the message. The Bible said that it pleased the Father, that in him all the fullness should dwell. Uh, Paul, Paul said, light has shone into our hearts to show the very glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's why we learn from him. Then Jesus comes on the scene and he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We can't even begin to wrap our minds around how provocative some of these statements from Jesus would have been. He would come to them and he would begin to say, I tell you, no one has seen the Father at any time. No one has seen the Father at any time. Now you've got to realize he's in the middle of a Jewish culture that borderline idolizes the patriarchs in their day. And Jesus is going to come and say, no one has seen the Father. And you've got to realize that they're going to start racking their brain going, no, 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 wait a minute. How about Abraham? How about Moses? How about Elijah? They even had Bible verses. We could pull up Bible verses where God's glory passes before Elijah and Moses goes on the mount of, and, and sees, sees God face to face and talks to him as a friend speaks to a friend. Abraham was a friend of God. We could go through all these stories and yet Jesus is going to come and say, I say to you, no one has seen the Father. How insulting, how, how arrogant he must have seemed to them because they're going through their Bible and saying, wait a second, this guy says he's the only one that knows the Father. What about all this other stuff that we've been trying to study? What about all this other stuff we've been talking about? And Jesus absolutely dismantles all of their theology. He completely strips away everything that they thought they knew and he, com he just completely blows their mind by saying, 
No one has seen him. They come to him and they say, show us the father and it'll be well to us. He goes, well, you already have. You've seen me. You've seen me. Not only that, in John 17, Jesus starts to pray. And this is when it starts to really get wild. Jesus says, Father, glorify me with the same glory that you and I had before the foundation of the world. I've always said we're really good with eternity. It's really hard to start wrapping our minds around eternity. For some reason, at least in my mind, it's kind of it's easier for me to comprehend that God will exist forever more than it is the fact that he has existed forever. And the fact remains that before the foundation of the world, Father, Son and Spirit dwelled face to face in perfect fellowship and union, always in communion with one another. And Jesus says, I am the one who was face to face with the Father for all of eternity. I am the one that that knows him deeply because inside of me dwells the fullness So when we say the school of Christ, I want those verses to start coming into your mind. It's not just a matter of seeing how he lived his life. It's not even just a matter of listening to his sermons. It's more than that. It's it's that and more. It's us being able to peer into this and begin to say, oh my goodness, a member of the Trinity has brought himself down and presented himself in a way that we could comprehend and began to engage with us on a human level so that we could then begin to say, now we can say we know who God is. We have no paradigm for who God is without Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I love the Old Testament. There's so much in the Old Testament that we can, that we can gain from. But if you read through it, you see so much confusion about who God is until Jesus comes mm-hmm. and says, I am the word made flesh. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. So I say to you again, if you walked in here with any belief system that does not fit within the person of Jesus, challenge it, challenge it. Jesus came to reveal the father and declares himself to be the only one qualified to do so because he has been face to face with the father before the foundation of the world in perfect fellowship. Let's look at John 1. I've been reading John 1 for like two years. And I don't say that in a way to say, look at me. I'm saying it's taken me two years to even start to understand what any of this means. It's so amazing. John says, in the beginning was the word. And I I love in the context of this, if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel, they start with genealogies. But yet John goes even further back and says, in the beginning of the beginning of the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. Now, even when I say that, we can't even quite comprehend that because the word with is actually the word pros. Pros is not with as in we're with each other right now. It's so much deeper than that. Pros is literally to turn face to face. So a a good translation would be to say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was face to face with God. And the Word was God, and the Word, again, was face to face with God in the beginning. So in the beginning, he was with God, pros. All things are made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And watch this, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. 
The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, we have to go back to the beginning. What was the first lie that the serpent said? If you eat this, your eyes will be opened. And the true deception was actually that when they entered into that darkness, they were blinded. Now, I've said this before, but I just want to say again, God did not change in the garden. God was the same the day before and the day after the fall. God was not the one that changed. We were. Suddenly, Adam, who's been walking in the cool of the day, hand in hand with Yahweh, begins to to enter into this darkness. And suddenly, he can't see what is. So now he's hiding in the bushes from God. And we've been hiding ever since. And we've inherited a gospel that's given us an angry God, a distant God, a retributive God, a God that is separate from us. And we've been taught and taught and taught how depraved we are, how lost we are, how broken we are. And yet David could come and say, even if I make my bed in hell, you're there. God was trying to position himself in front of man the whole time. He never turned his back. And because of that, we began to create a theology that even said that even on the cross, they were separated and the father turned his back on Jesus. And I'm telling you what, no matter what kind of theology, theological gymnastics you try to do, if God will turn his back on Jesus, I promise you, he will turn his back on you. And then Paul's able to come and give his clarity and say, but yet God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Jesus said, there's coming a time where it's going to appear that I'm alone, but I promise you, my father will not leave me. They were there together. That's important because if God's never going to abandon Jesus, like many of us have been taught, I promise you, he won't abandon you. So in the beginning, the word was face to face with God dwelling together in perfect unity and mutual love without the exchange of or without the uh, diminishment of their personhood. I mean, we could go on and on and on. It's mind-blowing. They're there together. So then Jesus comes, or, or I'm sorry, John comes and says, so in the beginning the word was, and the light shines in our darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. So Jesus came to deal with the darkness that was in our hearts. So then he comes and he says, I'm going to begin to open your eyes to see what is. Now look at this. Let's fast forward to uh, verse 14, John 1, 14. And it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. That's also interesting because John was older. But that's for another day. And of his fullness, we have all received grace for grace. Watch this. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. There it is again. But the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him to us. It's a beautiful. It's beautiful. And here's what's interesting. The way this verse is communicated, where it would say, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John was essentially trying to say that Jesus explained grace and truth to us. Now, we're in the school of Christ this morning, and we're talking about the grace of Jesus. And as Pastor Mo and I started to talk about this, I realized the irony of this because, and hear me out before you tune me out here, Jesus didn't actually teach grace. Now, he embodied it. We could talk about the woman at the well. We could talk about the woman caught in adultery, healing lepers, 
eating with sinners. He was obviously gracious, but in his sermons, he was almost anything but. You think about the way that he communicated himself. It's kind of interesting when you start to look at it. So when John says he explained grace to us, and then you go read his sermons, it can be a little confusing. Here's some examples. Jesus comes and and he's about to preach what many people believe is his most important sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. We're not going to look at it verse by verse or anything, but you can read about it, Matthew 5, 6, and and beyond. Jesus comes, and again, if, if you know that you have a very short window of time to complete your ministry, and you also know that this is going to be one of the moments where you have the possibility for the most impact, you would want to sort of put your best foot forward, right? Okay, so like in school, we had a class called homiletics, which is essentially like the, the craft of preaching. And one of the things that they said is never start with a negative point. Sandwich your points. Make it positive, encouraging. You know, let, let it kind of flow in and out so that you start with a good point, you end with a good point. If you need to throw some negative stuff, throw it in the middle. Jesus did not take that class. <laughs> Jesus comes, and this is his most important sermon. Now, you and I have the benefit of reading Jesus having also read Paul. You have no idea how hard it would be to understand if we did not have Paul. Paul is bold. Paul actually says in Romans that you and I will be judged based on his interpretation of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit agreed with it and put it in the Bible. So you and I get to go back through the lens of Paul and kind of start to interpret some of the things that Jesus was doing. They didn't have that. So then Jesus comes and you would be expecting him to start talking to us about justification by faith, salvation through grace alone, not through works. He makes it harder. He starts his sermon and he says, I have not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. Then he starts to pick apart pieces of the law and he says things like this. You have heard it said that if you kill another person, you've committed murder. I say to you, if you even have anger in your heart, you've already done it. Now, again, you've got to start to understand this is just some guy. They don't know who he is yet. And he's starting to say, well, I know Moses said that. And I know that's what the Pharisees and, and the rabbis are saying. I'm telling you this is what it actually means. You shouldn't be able to do that. Unless you're the word of God. Because it says, you heard it said, if you sleep with someone, that's adultery. I'm telling you, if you even turn for a second look, you've already committed it in your heart. He goes on and he keeps saying these things over and over and over again. And you've got to feel the weight of condemnation just resting on their shoulders. Especially considering that no doubt there were people in that audience that were perfectly content with the law. They knew a Messiah was coming. They thought he was going to overthrow Rome. He comes and starts talking about the law. And they're going, hold on, the law's fine. And he goes, no, this is the truth. And then he makes it harder, not easier. That is not a message of grace. He comes and starts telling them, be holy as I'm holy. How? How are we honestly supposed to do that? He, he goes on and on and on. It's hard for a rich man to enter into heaven. Even, I'm sure even you can think of some of these examples. Uh, A great example is in John 3. 
Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a good man. He's a fervent man. He's a faithful man. He comes to Jesus and he starts having this conversation. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, it is impossible for a man to enter into the kingdom of heaven unless he be born again. And then Nicodemus, rightly so, goes, huh? I'm supposed to enter back into my mother's womb and be born again. How? And you can almost sense Jesus kind of weak at him, like, now you're getting it. Unless a man be born of the Spirit, or what actually could have been translated, born from above. Unless a man is born from above, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. So after he drops this bomb on Nicodemus to essentially say, hey, just so you know, there's absolutely nothing you can do to fix this problem you're in. Jesus goes through the Sermon on the Mount and he makes this brutal, brutal case that it does not matter how faithful you think you are to the law. You cannot deliver yourself from the darkness that you've been brought into. And he continues to hammer the point out throughout his entire ministry. You cannot do this for yourself. Nicodemus, unless you're born from above... Unless you're born again, unless you're born by the Spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. That condemnation rests on him. And then Jesus breaks out. But I tell you this, God so loved the world. And he enters in the solution. That he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him that the world may be saved. So Jesus drops the bomb. This weight of condemnation. You can do nothing. I don't care what what you do, what you say, what you try to do, who you know. Unless you're born from above, there's nothing you can do. And then he says, but God so loved the world. I'm here now. I'm here now. So when we start to look at this and Jesus can begin to say, take my yoke on you for my burden is light. My yoke is easy. Learn from me. Learn from me because I'm beginning to teach you something that's going to set you free from your darkness. I'm about to give you eyes to see so you can see what actually is happening right now. He comes one face to face with the Father for all eternity. The Word becomes flesh, dwells among us. Jesus absolutely breaks their back with the law and then says, but I'm here and I'm about to solve this problem for you. This is the only way Jesus can claim to be the only way to the Father. That's why when he comes and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me. Again, they've been taught that the law was going to help them get there. Jesus goes, it's by me. It's by me. Now, I said earlier that we have the you know, benefit of being able to see this through the lens of Paul. Paul explains this to us. Now this works. Jesus' yoke is easy. And he, because he strips away the need for your legal and religious performance. He pulls the weight of condemnation off of your shoulders because he accomplishes it for you. Jesus didn't just die for you, he died as you. He didn't just rise for you, he rose as you. Okay? So here's how we have kind of, uh, uh, here's an example I like. This is how we've kind of preached the gospel. You're in a classroom. And don't freak out. I know that brings stress. 
You have a test. You've studied. You've studied so hard. You sit down. They put the test in front of you, and you realize you don't have a single answer to put down. Suddenly, Jesus walks up next to you, and he says, hey, I'm going to sit next to you, and I'm going to give you hints. I'm going I'm to help you answer the questions right. And you, you fill it out and hope you pass. The gospel says, Jesus said, that's my seat. I'm going to take the test for you. So what Jesus did in the incarnation, when he became a man, he not only just became a human being. And when I say incarnation, our minds can become uh, kind of limited when we just think baby. We think Christmas. We think manger. And when we think about that, we have to start to see that that includes his entire life. And that it's actually his life that saves us, not just his death. It was included in his life because what happens is Jesus becomes a man. And in that moment, he identifies with all of humanity. He becomes a human being so that he can become a representation of the human race. So Paul taught it like this. You have one mediator. His name is Jesus. And it's because your mediator has to be able to represent both sides equally. So because he's the one who's been face to face with the Father forever, he can represent and be the mediator between God and man. But not only that, Jesus becomes fully man so that on earth he is now the one that can represent man to God. So Jesus becomes our mediator or our representative. He embraces humanity. He completely becomes a man. And even in the sense of uh, when we say flesh, the word is sarks. It's not just skin. It's the flesh. It's every single thing that you struggle with, he put on himself. That's why he can say we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with us because he was tempted in every way. That's why we can say that he who knew no sin became sin. Jesus never sinned, but he certainly became sin because the word became flesh. So through that, Jesus represents us in our bondage, actually begins to work his way on the inside of the human race and burst out from the inside to deal with darkness that you and I could not deliver ourselves from. So Jesus represents humanity. Now watch this. Again, we're not going to look at it because it's too much. I'm going to encourage you, go home, read Romans 5, 6, and 7 in one sitting with this in mind. Paul starts talking about in Romans 5, Christ in our place. That's, that's the heading in my Bible. What he starts to do is he lays out this, this parallel between Adam and Jesus. So he comes in and he says, so through Adam, who represented mankind, Adam steps in and through one man, sin enters the world. And then he even says, even if they did not sin according to the way that Adam sinned, because Adam sinned, you're guilty. Yes. Adam allowed a disease called death to enter into the human condition. Now, Adam, it says, through the one man, that's an important phrase, through the one man, sin completely infected the entire human race. Then Paul turns it on his head and he begins to say, but through the one man, Jesus, the last Adam, all have been made alive. Yes. Yes. Ooh, 
Through one man, Jesus, or through one man, Adam, sin enters the world. Through one man, Jesus delivers. Now, here's what I don't understand. And this is, this is bothering me for a long time. No one has any problem having faith in Adam. Anybody you talk to will believe Adam was able to somehow touch every single human being for all of eternity. But we can't begin to see what Jesus actually did was what we would call efficacious. It actually accomplished what he said to deliver us from Adam's DNA. So that then when we come into faith, we can say that the spirit cries out, Abba, Father, we've been adopted. Not that we've joined his family, but that your DNA and bloodline has been completely reversed and joined. So what, what Paul begins to say is death in Adam, life in Christ. And he makes the case that says when he died, you died. When he rose, you rose. That's why I say Jesus did not just die for you. He died as you. He didn't just rise for you. He rose as you. Okay, so then he uses that as an example to say that now those sin entered the human race through Adam. Sin has now been defeated by one man, Jesus. He goes into Romans 6. And what does he say? What shall we say then? Shall we just keep on sinning that grace may abound? Shall we keep on sinning that grace may abound? Now, one way that you can interpret this, and I don't think this is necessarily wrong, is to say, well, now that I'm saying Jesus has delivered you, Jesus has made a way for you, now you just live however you want, you just do whatever you want, because, I mean, you have grace, right? I mean, we could make that case that that's what Paul's saying, but I actually don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think it's wrong, but I don't think that's what he was trying to communicate. What he's actually saying is, shall you just keep on sinning so that grace may abound? Remember, he is attacking the law voraciously. And he keeps going back to the law and to Jesus, to the law and to Jesus. And what he's trying to say is he's talking to people who felt that they continued to have to make atonement for their sins. So shall we continue sinning or shall condemnation continue to have a grasp on you? Shall you continue to feel the need to make atonement for your sins? By no means. By no means, because once and for all, the one man dealt with sin. So what he's trying to say is get rid of the guilt. Get rid of the shame. Quit trying to solve your problem over and over and over again. Believe that 2,000 years ago when he said it is finished, he meant it. We keep treating the gospel like Jesus said it is started. He said it's finished. It's accomplished. And I believe him. So he goes through. Romans 6, and he keeps going on and on and on. Dead to sin, alive to God. Dead to sin, alive to God. And he keeps connecting these dots between, shall we continue this? No, because like I told you, Adam may have done this, but through the last Adam, not the second Adam, the last Adam, Jesus solved the problem. So he keeps going on through Romans 6. Look at some of these phrases. And again, I just encourage you to read it. Romans 6, shall we continue? No, because Jesus died once and for all for sin. Then he says, we are buried with him and raised with him. You're reborn. That's what it means to be born from above, born from the spirit. It's not repeating a prayer. It it doesn't matter if you come up and talk to me after the service. If you want to, I will talk to you. You you were given access to that when Jesus died and resurrected. So he says, you were buried with him. And then you were brought up in life in the Spirit. That's why when we baptize people, sometimes we say buried with them in baptism, raised to walk in the newness of life. Right? 
So he says, you were buried with him and you were raised with him. So you were reborn. Then he says, we were united together in his death and resurrection. We were united with him in his death and resurrection. Sin no longer has dominion over you, Paul says. Why? Because you were included in what Jesus did on the cross. You were included in his death and resurrection and now live under grace, not the law. And if we kept going, we'd get to Romans 8, where he would say, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Then we get to Romans 9, 10, and 11, where he starts to say, Jesus is the elect man that came to deliver the human race. So what's happened is Jesus, again, he came and became a man to represent humanity. So God sees the scenario playing out and knows that you and I could never in our own way begin to work our way through there. So he says, so I'll become one of them. I will live a perfect life. I will actually fulfill the law that they can't, that they can't fulfill. I'll die for them. I'll overcome death and be reborn as a new human race. So when Adam gets a life breathed into him, the human race is created. When Jesus has life rebirthed into him and it resurrects, he resurrects as the last Adam, a.k.a. another human race. So that now all of us are included in what Jesus has done because we were united together with him in his death and resurrection. Theologians would call this the vicarious man. I live vicariously through Jesus' life, death, resurrection. That's why Paul will come in Galatians 2 and he'll say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. The life I live, I live by faith. But what your translation may say is faith in. What it actually should have said is the faith of. There's one Lord, there's one faith, and there's one baptism. Jesus substituted himself in your place. You live vicariously through him. So when we say you have faith, it's his faith. When you're baptized, you're just identifying with his baptism. And when you're resurrected out of that, you're resurrected identifying with what Jesus did in your place. So he is the vicarious man. We were brought into deliverance vicariously when Jesus overcame and said, it is finished. That's the message of grace. That's what Paul was trying to tell us. So when Jesus died, he represented all of humanity and atone for sin for all people. Your only role in faith is to agree with that. Come on now. I agree. So when you you say that, when we say you need to have a response of faith, you know, it's kind of like Jesus has sort of supplied the medicine and it doesn't do you any good unless you know it. I was reading an article about this. The guy said, let's just say that, you know, a woman has lost a child or so she thinks. I know that the child's actually alive. I come to her, and if we did this the way that we preach the gospel, we would say, hey, listen, I have news about your son. He's alive, but only if you believe me. No, what happens is you come and you say, your son's alive, and that news and the agreement with that news is what sets her free. It lifts the sorrow from her. So when I say that you have faith, it's not that your faith would change God. It's not that it changes the way he felt about you. It's not that suddenly, now that you have believed it, that you're forgiven. Once and for all, 
Jesus made forgiveness for all people. Now you come into faith and that's what sets you free is you beginning to have the blindness lifted off. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness comprehends it not. And you see what's already been true of you the whole time. I'm going to prove it to you. Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. This is why I say we have the benefit of having read Paul to understand what Jesus did. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Watch this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. In Christ, pay attention right now, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to be the praise and glory of his grace, which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made abound towards us in all wisdom, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven, which are in earth, in him, united together with him. So he says, before the foundation of the world, I found you, I knew you, I embraced you, and I called you beloved. Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. This was not a plan B. This was God's method of delivering the human race. So Jesus becomes a man. Jesus identifies and includes the human race in what he does. He dies and he resurrects. And that's why we can say this morning, he who is in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Because when Jesus died and resurrected he included you in that and that's why i can say this morning christ in me the hope of glory i'm seated with him in heavenly places because when he died i died when he rose he rose when he ascended i ascended and when he sat down he sat me in his lap forever in the beloved you're already embraced you're already forgiven you're already included you just don't know it yet thank you you just don't know it yet now look, I know this. I know this throws up all these questions. We we can talk about discipleship. We need to talk about sanctification. We need to talk about you know wh- what does this mean for for so many things. I get it. Here's what I want you to walk away with today, though. Jesus did it for you, yes. and He accomplished it. Yes. Brianna, go ahead and come up. Thank you. Jesus did it for you. So when you say you have faith in Jesus. It's just the light bulb going off, going, wow, this is what he's done for me. The reason why that's important today is because I know there are people in the room. I know there are people that will watch this online and hear this even later. You've had that wrestling match. Am I saved? Did I lose it? Can I lose it? Do I have enough faith? Have I done enough? Did I, was I sincere when I prayed? You know. We, we have this snowball that just builds where we, we just wonder what, what's going on, right? I want you to leave this morning with full assurance. Look at Colossians 2. This is where we're going to close. And we're just going to spend some time praying into this.
Colossians 2, verses 2 through 3, it says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I want you to leave this morning with a full assurance to know that when Jesus said it is finished, he included you in that. And if you're here this morning, or if you're listening to this, and you've had those doubts, you've had that kind of weight of condemnation that we talked about come on you, you've wrestled with whether or not this is true about you. I want this to begin to just penetrate those deep places. And I want you to begin to allow him to speak to you, to say, this is who you've been all along. This is who you've been all along. I chose you and embraced you before the foundation of the world. God's not turning his back on you. God is for you. God is for you and has made a way. And this morning we can be confident to know when Jesus said it is finished, it was finished. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you that it is finished. And Lord, I ask you, would you just release the full assurance of faith this morning? The full assurance of faith this morning to know, to know. Lord, release those spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God. To know the hope of your calling and the glorious inheritance that you have in the saints. Lord, help us to see it. Lord, let light shine into darkness this morning and the darkness would not comprehend it. Lord, let light shine in our hearts, the very glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for it. We thank you for it. Can we stand this morning? Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you are impacted by this message, please consider going and sowing into our ministry at dylantarpley.com slash give. Thank you.